This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome. This is the Legal Talk Network, and we're glad you could listen to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I practice in the law firm of Alan S. Pierce and Associates in Salem, Massachusetts, and our focus is the representation of injured workers and their families as a result of on-the-job disabilities and injuries. We focus uh, on topics on this show relating to the law of workers' compensation, and as you know, there are many types of workers' compensation cases, and every jurisdiction has its own version of workers' compensation law. But what we want to talk about today is the issue of disability prevention versus disability management. And joining me today to discuss this topic is Dr. Jennifer Christian. Dr. Christian is the Chief Medical Officer of Webility Corp., uh, where they are a training and management company whose purpose is to to initiate positive change in workers' compensation and disability benefits systems. Dr. Christian has over 25 years as a board-certified occupational medicine specialist and is very active in the concept of uh, helping organizations, companies, insurers to better manage their workers' compensation and disability programs. Dr. Christian, welcome to our show. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start right off by... um, Talking a little bit about Webility, how did you come to uh, become the chief medical officer of that company? Well, actually, I founded Webility, and I'm also its president. Uh, in 1999, I was at an industry conference, the Washington Business Group on Health's disability meeting, and I was listening to a panel of employers and insurers uh, complaining about the fact that doctors didn't understand the role they play in preventing or avoiding net disability. And if they did understand they had a role, they didn't know how to play it. And the panel also talked about how they'd gone to medical schools asking for doctors, asking the medical schools to start training doctors about this, and the medical schools had said, buzz off. We have way more important things to do. So I thought to myself, if it's a business problem for insurers and employers that doctors don't understand disability, it should be a business opportunity for us, and that's the day Webility got born. And you have a website, do you not, that uh, has more information? Yes. Uh, our website is www.webility, W-E-B-I-L-I-T-Y, dot M-D, like doctor. And that's dot M-D instead of dot com. Now, in, in the uh, materials that you've written and uh, that are available on your website, you speak a lot about disability prevention and disability management. What's the difference between the two? Well, um, All too frequently, disability management, in my opinion, is fiddling about disability. It's people communicating and talking and fussing about a disability which is already long established. And uh, in my first experience working in occupational medicine in the real world, which actually was for Bath Iron Works in Bath, Maine some years ago, I realized that disability is basically preventable often if what we define it as is absence from work. Frequently, absence from work is not really required after somebody's injured or ill. And if you nip it in the bud right at the beginning, people never get the idea they're disabled, and uh, we can avoid a lot of misery and a lot of unnecessary expense. 
I noticed that you use the term medically necessary disability as opposed to medically unnecessary disability. How, how do you differentiate between the two? Fellow gets injured at work, his doctor says you need six weeks off to recover from your neck strain, your shoulder strain. Isn't that a medically necessary disability? Not necessarily. Um, I did a survey some years ago. Actually, my I used to work as the chief medical officer of a managed care workers' compensation company that did business in about seven states. And one day my boss said to me, how many people after they've had a work-related injury really need to stay home, be away from work for strictly medical reasons? And I gave him my number, and he thought it was so outrageous that I decided to do a survey of occupational physicians and find out what they thought. So I did. Um, I surveyed about 100 doctors who practiced in 44 jurisdictions, and I asked them how, in your clinical experience of people who have a work-related injury that's significant enough they seek medical care, how many of them really need to be away from work for more than a few days for strictly medical reasons? And the answers were surprising because more than 90% of the doctors said that the, it was less than 10% of their patients. And what was your number? I'll tell you in a second. Okay. More than 50% of the doctors said that the right number was less than 5%. And the more experience that the doctors had had with the use of transitional work, the more experience that the doctors had had actually with ADA accommodations cases in which people, you know, who have quadriplegia or are dying of cancer fight to be able to come back to work, um, the lower the number got. My number had been 2 or 3%. Now, nationally, the actual number of people who stay away from work for more than a few days is about 23%. That's 23% of all on-the-job injuries? 23% of all on-the-job injuries uh, tend to stay home for long enough to qualify for indemnity benefits, which, depending on the state, means they've stayed home longer than three or five or seven days. Here in Massachusetts, it's about 30%. To what do you attribute that? A combination of medically discretionary and medically unnecessary disability, which are all fundamentally not medically driven. So the drivers that you have found that account for this higher number or higher percentage uh, are non-medical factors. They're Fundamentally so non-medical factors. Uh, well, some, some examples are, um, well, first of all, let me just say, uh, in the new American College of Occupational Medicine practice guidelines, Chapter 5, Disability Prevention and Management, we define what medically required disability. And when we say disability, by the way, this whole time I'm not talking about anatomy. I'm talking about absence from work. So when I'm ever using the word disability, I'm talking about withdrawal from or absence from work that's attributed to a medical condition. Uh, but the def definition of when you really need to be away from work is if you have to be at a place of care. If you have to be in the hospital, you have to go to the physical therapist, you have to be in a day treatment program. Or if you need to be confined to home or bed, if, you're, if your recovery requires that you be still and protected from the world, then you really need, can't be at work. Or if there's some peculiarity about your condition that means that all forms of work or any kind of commute would potentially cause you harm. Um, and that, there aren't really very many circumstances under which people have to be uh, away from any kind of work or any kind of job. A very common example is that people will confuse a circumstantial reason for a medical reason. And uh, just as one example, I used to work on the North Slope of Alaska for British Petroleum. And there was a guy that wanted to come to work for us who had hemophilia. And I said, uh, I'm sorry, I think it's really contraindicated for you to work on the North Slope of Alaska because if something goes wrong, you're going to need blood. We have no blood up here on the North Slope. It's an hour and a half away by jet with the nearest hospital. And we frequently are weathered in and we can't get you out. So you really, 
it's it's not right for you to work here. But the problem wasn't actually his hemophilia. The problem was our circumstances because the guy could have worked anywhere where there was blood close enough at hand. So frequently what will look like it's medical is actually situational. Now, uh, discretionary disability happens whenever somebody makes a decision that it's not worth the effort to get whatever productive capacity somebody has. They could be at work safely as long as you could arrange the right tasks for them to do and you could put the right protective mechanisms in place and you ask them to do stuff that was within their capability. Um, but somebody decides that's too much work or that the union rules won't allow it or that um, they can't figure out a way to get them to work or it's too much bother. And essentially those are business decisions. Somebody's making a cost-benefit decision about whether what you have to contribute to work at work today is worth the effort. You know, there's one, I'm going to mention a four-letter word, and it's a word I have not heard you mention yet. If I were having a conversation about this topic with my client base, it's a word I would hear probably from every client, and that four-letter word is pain. And how do you factor into the approach of managing disability or uh, uh, disability being medically unnecessary to the worker who says, I'm in too much pain to work, I cannot sit for more than 15 minutes, I can't drive to work, I can't concentrate because of the pain, I can't sleep at night, I take pain meds, et cetera, et cetera. Where does the injured worker's focus on his or her pain fit into this model that you're, you're trying to improve? Okay. Uh, well, actually, all pain isn't the same, uh, and people frequently uh, don't really have that idea very clear. Sometimes pain really is a warning indicator of tissue damage. It's a troublesome new symptom. It needs to be investigated. And it would be inappropriate for somebody to be working if in the act of working they're actually damaging themselves. But a lot of times what pain is is fundamentally a comfort issue or a humanitarian issue, really, uh, particularly in people with chronic pain. Uh, there's no way particularly that experiencing the pain will be damaging them. There's no harm to them that occurs other than that they'll be uncomfortable. And so frequently, again, this is an example of something which is almost a, as a non-medical issue masquerading as one. And I now am starting to teach doctors that they're kind of being used by the system to enforce what is essentially a humanitarian concern, which is that as an employer and employee, if you're my employer and I'm telling you that I'm hurting, Maybe the real issue is whether you're the kind of creep that's perfectly happy to make people work even though they hurt. And maybe my issue as the patient with the pain is that, hey, if the reality is that this job makes me hurt every single day when I do it, maybe I need to pick another career. But fundamentally, it's not medical because it is not pathological. It's not causing damage. Now, you were part of a, uh, a team that put together a uh, report on preventing needless work disability uh, by helping people stay employed. And uh, you identified a number, perhaps 15 or 16 uh, areas of recommendations. Right. We made 16 recommendations in four big families, yes. And w the first one is to adopt a disability prevention model. What exactly uh, would you tell an employer who wants to, to do that to do? What's the first step? Well, the main way to avoid needless long lasting disability and what we call iatrogenic disability or iatrogenic uh, invalidism is to have people get right back on the horse. In general, for human beings, we do better when we get right back in the saddle, we get right back on the horse. We don't have a chance to start to 
wonder and fuss and think of ourselves as ill or damaged goods. We just keep life as normal as we possibly can and let the healing happen. So uh, the two main ways that we think that disability prevention can really be implemented is, first of all, is for everybody to understand that really absence from work is actually only rarely medically required. People can work. The only question is, at what? How can we keep them comfortable and how can we keep them safe so they can recover on the job? The second thing is for people to understand that the development of this iatrogenic, and I'll define the word in a second, the development of this needless sense of self as disabled is remarkably rapid. And so if we want to prevent people from coming to look at themselves as disabled, we need to get them back in the saddle quickly uh, by as short as two weeks, more, more commonly by as short as by six weeks, somebody is starting to wonder if they are who they used to be. They're starting to change their identity and their self-concept. And so it's really urgent that we get people back in the saddle as quick as possible in order to avoid that needless disability. And does that require a uh, identified and working transitional work program, light-duty program, modified-duty program, however does, you want to term it? Well, um, the vast bulk of the time on the non-occupational side where we don't have the artificial culture, or culture of workers' compensation in the way, most of the time if the employee and the employer are getting along and it's basically a trusting environment and the, the, confident, the employer is confident that the employee is doing the best they can, they just informally agree that the person is going to recover on the job. And in, in most workplaces, without any doubt, particularly if they see someone struggling with cancer, they'll try and help them stay at work no matter what. It's in the sort of sick system of workers' compensation where there's distrust and cynicism and inauthenticity that we have to be so formal maybe more of the time and have a transitional work program that's formal. But, yeah, actually on the occupational and on the non-occupational side, when an, when an employer says – we want to support people in staying well. We want to support people in getting well as fast as possible. And we also want to make use of whatever productive pe capacity people have and keep them safe and comfortable. Then a transitional work program is a fabulous thing. Okay. You know, you mentioned the workers' compensation system is in a, a fairly pejorative way. You called it a sick system or at least a, a, a system that isn't functioning well. Correct. And that the system itself seems to breed a different definition or, or characterization of disability. Where did that come from? How can it be changed? I have no idea where it came from, but I remember when I finished my training and I went into my first job at Bath Ironworks, my first sort of real occupational medicine job, being just stunned at how people treated one another on both sides. And uh, I was so innocent. I just said, hey, this is wrong and this is, we're wasting money and we're hurting people. This is stupid. Let's treat people the way we think they ought to be treated. Let's use the golden rule. And also, let's not make any bones about it that the company intends to get the, f the use out of people that it hired them to do. We have a basic business relationship. You give us a fair rate for eight, and we'll give you a fair rate for eight. We'll help you in any way to recover, and we expect you to offer us what you can while you're recovering. And it, it actually was remarkable because it was a, a, a company with seven unions in a very tough state with a lot of adversarialness and cynicism. And just coming in and saying, we intend to do the right thing by you, and we also intend to have you do the right thing by us, uh, we had a remarkable impact. And did the unions sign on to this? Yeah. they. I mean, we... We took we it took us over a year and but by the end I mean at my goodbye party the president of the union and the president of the company uh, were on both sides of me and it was a little embarrassing for the union guy he said you know don't let anybody see this picture but 
we uh, we were out for a square deal for the worker and for the company. Because that leads to the second major category in your 16 recommendations, uh, which is after you adopt a disability model or disability prevention model, is to change the behavioral realities and uh, look at normal human reactions, both of the employer and the injured worker or the workforce in general. How, what's your role, what's WebAbility's role in communicating that need to your clients? Well, you're, you're asking kind of two fun questions at the same time. Let me answer the bigger one first. Uh, one is, what are we doing with this new guideline? Is uh, this uh, new guideline, Preventing Needless Work Disability by Helping People Stay Employed, is an official guideline now of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. And they usually stop once they issue a guideline. And since WebAbility's purpose is to catalyze positive change, and actually what that means is make new stuff happen, what we've invented is what we call the 60 Summits Project. We want to have a meeting held in every state where all the stakeholders attend. And using this guideline as a framework, they break into small groups and look at these 16 recommendations and really find a way to implement these recommendations in their states. Now, this particular one, which is that people's normal human reactions need to be acknowledged and dealt with, is human beings who are injured or ill are suddenly having their lives turned upside down. Even by something that may look small to the insurer or may look small to the employer, it may be huge in their life because so many people today are two-career families with child care arrangements and complicated transportation plans, and many people don't know where a good doctor is, and having an injury just suddenly throws life in a cocked hat. And the, just applying the golden rule and being more sensitive to what it is that the injury is causing in somebody's life, and also the kind of grief and upset and uncertainty and anxiety and anger that happens a lot of time when somebody has been injured. The workers' comp system right now doesn't acknowledge any of that. And so what will sometimes happen is that these normal human reactions um, turn into deep-seated resentment, uh, hostility, adversariality, depression, guilt, and can really turn into a real psychological problem. So uh, many things, for example, can be fixed by just normal, simple human kindness and courtesy uh, and don't have to go into complicated, expensive fixes. If just right at the beginning the boss said, I am so sorry that you got hurt and I know that you're having trouble with child care, is there anything that we can do here? Is there somebody that can help with a babysitter or mow your lawn or just expressions of concern and kindness? You know, it's funny you mentioned that. Not too long ago I put together what I call the top ten list of why injured workers retain attorneys. And right at the very top of the list was the either the absence of any contact by the employer after the happening of an injury or the wrong initial contact. The hostile suspicious. Host, yeah. This hostile suspicious contact, mm -hmm. the requirement that you come in with a note, no mention of how you are, the fear that if you, you the employer, say the wrong thing, you're going to be sued. Uh, and it starts the cycle very early. Um, one ingredient that I see as a, as a participant in the claims process is the fact that we have the employer, we have the employee, but right in the middle of this whole mix, we have the workers' comp insurer. And what, if anything, are you advising that the comp carriers do or the employers do with reference to their comp carrier? Because a lot of employers just report the case to the workers' comp carrier and it's off to the races with the comp carrier. That's, that's the end of any communication between the employer and the injured worker. It's all in the hands of the carrier. Yeah, I think um, 
many of the solutions for a better workers' compensation system have to do with empowering the employer to manage these situations in a positive way. And uh, one of the products that we actually have is a web-based course for first-line supervisors on how to manage an injured or ill employee in the workplace. Because just because somebody's become injured or ill, they don't disappear. They're still your employee. But the fact that they've got an insurance company and the employers are sort of distracted and overwhelmed with other business, they tend to just abandon and neglect the injured worker. And it's just a dumb idea. One of the things I used to say is, is that it is really fundamentally silly to be mean to injured workers because they've got your visa card. Well put. We're going to take a quick break and come back with Dr. Christian to talk about uh, these topics in just a moment. We'll be right back on the Legal Talk Network with more from our host, Attorney Alan S. Pierce, and his guest on Workers' Comp Matters, where we focus on the people and legal issues in workers' comp cases. You can listen to Workers' Comp Matters anytime on your computer or download the show to listen later. We invite you to join as a member to Legal Talk Network so you can get updates on our upcoming Internet radio shows. Workers' Comp Matters with attorney Alan S. Pierce is produced right here at the Legal Talk Network by a staff of professional news broadcasters. We're the only ones who can provide the best quality shows with the latest legal news and information in an interactive format you won't find anywhere else. Want to know more about Legal Talk Network host and attorney Alan S. Pierce? He's nationally known for his expertise in workers' comp and the law, appointed by two governors to the State Workers' Compensation Advisory Council on the editorial board of the Journal of Workers' Compensation, leading lawyers across the country with a commitment beyond passion. Find out more about Attorney Pierce on the Legal Talk Network website under About Us. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters. We are discussing the issue of disability prevention and disability management with Dr. Jennifer Christian of Webility Corp., whose work can be uh, seen, and you could learn more about her and her company at www.webility.md. Dr. Christian, we left off our discussion with um, the role of the workers' comp insurer in this process of managing disability or preventing disability. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the physician's role, the treating doctor, the independent medical evaluator, perhaps the company uh, physician or clinic. How do the physicians fit into this, and what do you recommend in terms of educating them on on their role in disability uh, prevention? Well, as I said, uh, the day that WebAbility got born is the day that I realized that um, 
employers and insurers really suffer because doctors have not been prepared to play their part in disability management. You know, none of us in medical school or residency are ever taught that disability is an issue that is in our, that is our responsibility. It's actually not considered to be part of the practice of medicine, disability management. And uh, there are some employers and insurers and perhaps some uh, patients who think it is the doctor's job, but this is a little bit in, like in unions, a, a cross-trading argument. You can say to the carpenter, you think he ought to be doing pipe fitting, but he defines what carpentry is, and so he says, no, that's not my job. So... Part of the problem is that to the doctor, filling out these return-to-work slips is uh, an administrative courtesy or, more accurately, a paperwork bother, and uh, they don't see it as an important part of their role. They don't actually see that anything beyond diagnosis and treatment is kind of of that much interest to them. Now, that causes a lot of harm. It means that they are not giving advice to their patients that they probably ought to. Uh, doctors have a huge role, which has been demonstrated in study after study, of setting expectations for recovery for people. You know, people quit smoking because their doctors tell them to. People quit drinking and, and lose weight because their doctors tell them to. They take medicine because their doctor tells them to. And if the doctor says to them, I think you can recover from this and do well and you ought to go back to work and just uh, it's going to be uncomfortable for a while, but it's important for you to keep life as normal as possible, that's great advice and it actually does lead to better recoveries, but many doctors don't know to say that. They also don't know how, and they've never been trained to evaluate work capacity. They haven't really been trained to think through what are the risks that might be posed to somebody by work. So what happens is they make wild guesses or they're silent. And um, so what in de facto happens is the employee a lot of times is left on their own to sort out what they think, and they may need to work on it with their supervisor. They may need to work on it with the company. Frequently, the employer actually, or the employer's medical department, is a lot better trained and prepared to understand what are the medical issues in some of the jobs. So the employee goes to his doctor, and the doctor um, makes a wild guess. Frequently, the doctor is interested in doing whatever the employee wants. I mean, remember, doctors have thousands of patients. And they see people with back pain who are fighting to stay at work no matter what. And they see people who are saying, fabulous, now I get a couple days off for this back pain. Doctors see the whole range and gamut of employment situations and personalities. And they're basically not interested or committed enough around disability to jeopardize their customer relationships. So they tend to do what their patient wants them to do. So how, how integral to this whole process is the employer putting in place a modified work program or a program to accommodate a person's physical impairments after a job on the job injury well when when the employer is actively managing uh, return to work when the employer is proactively and positively uh, facilitating on the job recovery for people, there are very few problems and usually the magic formula is if you have an employee and a supervisor who themselves are interested in working it out and achieving a good good outcome, very rarely does the doctor need to do more than say, yeah, okay, that's fine by me. Um, so the probably the most powerful person in a workers' comp situation is the employee because the employee decides how much effort to make to get better and get back to work. And the second most powerful person is the employer because the employer decides how to manage the situation, whether to be helpful or hostile, kind or neglectful. And if those two guys or people are aligned, 
we don't need any much buddy much else. Occasionally, the doctor may be needed to answer a technical question. Occasionally, the insurer may need to get involved because there may be resources that the others aren't aware of that the insurer knows about. But we just really need to remember the employee is the most powerful and the employer is the next most powerful. And how does your model work for the small employer that <clears throat> is limited in what he or she can offer in terms of modified work that there's a, a budget for, for uh, wages? If there's an absent worker and you have to get somebody to replace that person. There's no medical director. There's no company dispensary. Um, this is where it works less well. It, this is really one of the problem areas. Now, there even in large companies, there's kind of a skill to spotting transitional work opportunities. It could be, as my grandmother would say, if it were a snake, it would have bit you. A lot of times there is transitional work sitting right under the nose of the small employer, and they simply can't see it. And now this is a good place where the insurance company or a return-to-work specialist can be a help because they can come in and spot that opportunity. There also are economic obstacles to bringing back workers to small employers, just like you say. They have a very limited budget, and they either have to pay Alan to come back and work half duty, or they have to spend it on a temporary worker, and they say, i got to go pen it on the temporary worker. And that's the other advice we give to insurance companies, is to think more creatively about easing the economic burden on small employers, bringing them back. Doctor, you made reference to the report of the Stay at Work and Return to Work Committee of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. Could you tell our listeners how they can download or read that report? Oh, okay, sure. Well, the, since we've just told you our website address, you can find it from our website. We link straight to the ACOM website where you can find it. So either go to www.webility.md, and again, that's .md, not .com, or you can go to www.acoem.org. That's the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. And then there's a section there called Positions and Statements, and you'll find this as a guideline. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Workers' Comp Matters. You've been very informative and knowledgeable, and I've enjoyed meeting you and speaking with you about this. We hope you'll join us for another Workers' Comp Matters show. Thanks for listening today. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. Go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.